I had to take making money out of the equation. And so it was all about, you have to meet a real or a perceived need. That's what, that's what a successful project is. You might like somebody's record. A lot of people liked my records, but they didn't feel like they needed to go buy it. There was nothing about it that they felt they, I need this record. Somebody is going to go and purchase something they think they need. Either they do need or they think they need. You know, I just wanted to just meet needs. You are listening to the Christian Music Archive podcast, part of the new release today podcast network. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I share stories about Christ, community, and music, chatting with musical guests who you will find listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. As I've been working on this podcast project, I've discovered a number of excellent podcasts that I really enjoy. One of those is hosted by Rick Altizer, a movie director who has produced movies for Shonda Pierce and Russ Taff. Rick was also a recording artist back in the late 90s, so it was great fun to sit down with Rick and chat about his transition from musician to movie producer, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. We'll get to our interview in just a minute, but I'm excited to first tell you about the Work of Mercy, Inc. in Colombia. They have a project there called Soy Satura, which is helping feed kids who are crossing the border from Venezuela to go to school. You see, the schools in Venezuela are not very good, so moms are taking their kids to school in Colombia where they can get a decent education. Now, the Colombia government is willing to provide an education to these kids, but they won't feed them like they do the Colombian children. And most of these kids from Venezuela are from really poor families that don't even have money to feed their kids. So Mercy Inc. is taking soybeans to create both food and juice that they are able to feed these kids, sometimes the only meal they will get in a day. I sure would like to share more about the Soy Satura project and how you can get involved. Would you head over to the website christianmusicarchive.com mercy so you can learn how you can help feed these kids? Our intent is to make a difference around the world through this podcast. And one of the ways we do that is through the work of Mercy, Inc. So again, head over to christianmusicarchive.com mercy and discover how you can make a difference to the children of Venezuela. As I mentioned in the intro, Rick Altizer has been making biographical movies like I Still Believe, The Russ Taft Story, and Shonda Pierce, Laughing in the Dark. Rick really stumbled into the movie career after his dream of making it big in music kind of sputtered out and went nowhere. <laughs> I'm excited to share Rick's story of how he learned the importance of making things people really need rather than just focusing on a career he thought he wanted. So join me in welcoming to the podcast, Rick Altizer. Sounds great, Dave. Appreciate it. You've been making music since the late 90s, and that's obviously why I'm talking with you because you're on our website, the Christian Music Archive. But you've done a lot more than just release albums. You uh, have been a music producer for other people. You've had a radio show. You were a church worship director. And you're currently a movie director. I think you even started an entertainment company. So you wear an awful lot of hats. I do. Let's talk about some of those hats. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite hat? Uh, well, whichever hat will pay the bills right now is my favorite hat. <laughs> You know, my, my heart, my dream was to do music. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. And, um, and so I was a recording artist in the late nineties, early two thousands. And, um, and you know, I sold dozens of records to all of your family. <laughs> I have dozens of fans all over the world. <laughs> dozens. I tell you. Yeah. I think my first record blue plate special, I think it went linoleum oh. <laughs> and the, uh, the second record did even better. It did even better. So, uh, well, my yeah. first exposure to you was Go Nova. Okay. That's my third record. Yeah. How did you get started in the music side of things? Was that something and you said you always wanted to do that? Was that a, something you had to search after or did you just decide I'm going to do it and make it happen? 
Yeah, I, I moved out to Los Angeles uh, to do music. That's why I went there to be a rock a rock star for Jesus. Uh huh. Um, this is why I went there, and I was managed by a guy by the name of Elliot Roberts. Okay. Who managed uh, at that time? He managed Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and um, Neil Young, and he started Asylum Records with David Geffen. So he was kind of a an icon. Yeah. If you see the movie, if you see the movie Laurel Canyon, right. He's he's in it. He was okay. A Joni Mitchell's manager and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young's manager, um, and so he was managing me, and I was uh, you know supposed to be a big a big uh, you know rock star and. Uh, Things didn't work out. the The deal that I was supposed to get with Sony didn't didn't come through, and one thing led to another, and I ended up moving to Nashville and getting out of Dodge and uh, <laughs> being depressed for a few years. And uh, you know, God just had other plans, and um, it didn't work out uh, as things often do in the music industry. Sure, yeah. And uh, and so I uh, came out here and wrote songs to God and didn't play them for anybody. And then one day I felt okay to play them from somebody and then i played a show and somebody said you need a record deal and i went yeah okay and so next thing you know i'm i'm in a recording record company's office and the guy is offering me a record deal i wasn't even looking for wow. this deal so so uh, i said okay I'll, i will take your deal on on two conditions he goes okay i says i'll never do christian fluff and you have nothing i need hmm so if we're, if we're good on those two, then, then I'll do it. So I needed to say that for me because the, the record deal had been such an idol in my life. Uh -huh. It had been, you know, I'd been so ambitious and worked so hard and wanted it so bad that when God stripped that from me, you know, it was a really hard process of dying, yeah. putting, putting Isaac on the altar. And then God says, okay, now put the knife in. Mm. You go, wait a minute, God, you're supposed to stop me. Wait, no. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he said, no, I want you to kill this dream. And so it was very, very hard and painful. And so I did not want to get back into that, uh, the idol of, I got to get a record deal. I got to be successful. I got to mm -hmm. have, you know, uh, God really stripped me of that. And that, you know, that's a long story that I don't know that we need to get into, but it doesn't bring, it didn't bring any fulfillment in my life. And so um, anytime I put anything in front of a God and, and look to it to give me meaning or purpose, uh, that becomes a functional savior in my life. By definition, that's an idol. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, the first two commandments are don't have any gods before me and don't make any idols. Yeah. Every other <laughs> commandment kind of comes after those two, stems exactly. out of those two. Yeah. If I'm lying, okay, I've broken a commandment, but why am I lying? Well, I, I don't, I want the praise of men. I don't want someone to think ill of me or I don't want conflict or whatever. I'm avoiding all these other things yeah. that have become idols in my life. Those are more important to me than obeying God. I, you know, I want to avoid conflict so bad I'll lie. Right. So, mm. um, the, to me, I, I don't know how we got off on that, but yeah, no, no. Well, to me, that's interesting because a lot of times we can see something big like a recording contract or, or a career or something as that idol, but the, you so aptly put it, we, we do other things that we throw into our lives to fill this God void or to avoid this God void, and that becomes something that's an, a stumbling block between us and the Lord. Right, yeah. That's good. We're idol factories. Calvin says we're idol mm -hmm. factories. Right. We, we make idols. It's just what we do. You know, I can make an idol out of my wife, out of my job, out of my kids, out of my comfort. Uh, I'm a big one with conflict. I like to avoid conflict. So that, that can become an idol in my life real easy. My comfort. Yeah. You know, I want to be comfortable. Yeah. So, so I was very uncomfortable um, uh, after losing the, my management deal and going, you know, re recognizing uh, this isn't going to work out for me here in LA. And so coming to Nashville and then when uh, this, this, this new label started up called KMG records, they were a small label group, yeah. just started up. And uh, they wanted to sign me as their first artist. So I uh, made uh, two records for them. And then, of course, the company went out of business. Uh, <laughs> right. That's what they get for signing me. Because <laughs> after and, all, you uh, did go linoleum. <laughs> right. I worked with a guitar player by the name of Adrian Ballou. He played uh, guitar on the record mm -hmm. and uh, co-produced uh, and, and helped mix. And 
so that was a great dream for me because he's my favorite guitar player. So ah. I was just so thrilled to play with him. You know, he's been with Bowie and Zappa and Talking Heads and Nine Inch Nails and just in a great creative. Uh, and he's in a band called King Crimson. Right. So um, I'm just so thankful to get to work with him. And so that was a great dream come true and sold dozens of copies and went to Holland and was kind of a mid-level b-level artist in holland and oh, so that was kind of neat and yeah had a couple of cool shows and then the whole thing was over and then i made the go nova record which came out on a label that uh you know didn't really have any distribution so uh you know and after that it was just kind of over so i still make stuff i still made records just because i wanted to and i made a scripture memory record that i did just for me just for my just to give away yeah. and still make things and uh started a, a company uh, with the guy that actually who's the president of the record label. His name is Kent Songer. And we started our own company and then started a, a children's brand called Worship Jams. Okay. Which uh, uh, a company called Razor and Tie out of New York put $2 million in TV ads. This was in 2006, 2007, okay. right before the crash, 2008. And uh, we were the number one selling worship record in America. No kidding. Uh, on TV, no one knew who we were. None of the Christian people even knew who we were. But if you watch Nickelodeon, if you watch SpongeBob Friday nights on Nickelodeon, you'd see our commercials. Uh -huh. We had commercials on Nickelodeon, kids raising their hands, worshiping God on Nickelodeon. Very people cool. were calling up. They were calling up Nickelodeon, uh, complaining, "Why are you proselytizing on your network?" <laughs> so we did uh, 800,000 units of worship jams. So, I mean, it was the number one selling worship record. We, we were outselling Chris Tomlin wow. at that time, and no one knew who we were. And it was great, kind of under the radar, but that was, uh, you know, kind of a kid's worship thing. And mm -hmm. I said, well, if I'm going to do cheesy kids' worship music, it's going to be the best cheesy kids' worship music you've ever heard. So <laughs> big, huge productions and all this stuff with, you know, jiggy, 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 everything. Yeah. That kind of, you know, jiggy kind of thing. But the timing was just perfect. Britney Spears and um, Justin Timberlake had just gone nasty. The Jonas Brothers and Hannah Montana hadn't hit just yet. It was mm -hmm. right before this. So there was this little void where you couldn't get anything for your kids that was clean. And you gotcha. could still sell records on TV. And so, I mean, we did 800,000 units at wow. full retail. That's when we were selling at Target and Walmart. 80% of our record sales were, tar were Walmart and Target. That's incredible. We were full retail. We were twelve ninety nine at Walmart. Uh, full retail, we were able to do that. Then two thousand and eight, the whole thing crashed, and yeah. the whole record industry started to tank. And then you couldn't sell records anymore. All the kids' records started at two ninety nine. Mm -hmm. You couldn't, you couldn't get you know the the, the stores started closing down. The CD sections started getting smaller and smaller, and they started putting videotapes in. Uh, video, I mean, uh, DVDs were, were then taking over the CD section and right. the DVD section got bigger. So I, we, my business partner and I, we spoke, said, okay, we got to get out of music. It's, it's dying. It's, it's, we're, we're not able to make income with music anymore unless you go on the road and tour. That's it. That's right. really the only way. And so we, I said, we need to get into film. And so we transitioned, we started doing uh, consulting for pure flicks and, did uh, work with Shonda Pierce. So let's talk about that transition, though. How did you decide to switch from music to film? Because that was obviously a conscious choice. Was it because you saw the DVDs taking over the CDs and, and Target and Walmart? Yeah, well, the writing was on the wall with uh, downloads, with iTunes. Um, uh, it was very clear to see that you can't sell plastic anymore. People just aren't wanting plastic right. as far as music goes. iTunes kind of killed that. The royalty rates off off of iTunes and Pandora are are ridiculously low. I mean, it's crazy. You know, for a Christian artist who might sell, let's say, maybe he sells thirty thousand records. Okay. Maybe forty thousand units. Okay. Well, when you when you put that into, and let's say like somebody wanted the album, they listened to one or two of the songs on it. Right. So you put that. You know, let's say he gets sixty thousand downloads. Okay, it's 0. 0.007 cents a download. Which means it's 0. 0.00 not a lot. <laughs> which means, you know, you can sell, a, you can get a million downloads and uh, what, where you get a couple hundred bucks? You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the number. I, 
have to, I mean, it's really, really small, the amount of money. So it's gone. I mean, basically, your 30,000 records now, they just want the two songs. So you get a total of 60,000 downloads and, and you've made about $400. So you can't pay for music that way. Yeah. No, no. So it's over. It's done. And so um, I've got friends that I've interviewed on my show, uh, songwriters who have hits with Dolly Parton and, and Kenny Rogers and, you know, number one, yeah. all these country songs. And they were told growing, you know, all going in your, your retirement's going to be your catalog. Well, now that's over. Wow. It's over. Streaming just doesn't pay anything. Yeah. So it's so bad. Um, it's such a, what they've done for writers in the music industry. It's just, it's kind of killed it. So the only way you can make money is to go on the road and tour, which now with COVID, oh my goodness, these guys, <laughs> done. Yeah. really, they're struggling. Yeah. They're, they're having to go work at FedEx or something. Right. I mean, they're doing whatever they have to do to try to make ends meet because um, that's why the ticket sales are now, you know, it's a hundred dollars a ticket yeah. to go see a, a band. It used to be your, your, you would keep your concert tickets low so that you would go sell more records and you'd make your profit on your album sales. And that's what the tour was. It was all about selling albums. Now it's reversed. Now the, the streaming is to promote the ticket sales and the tickets are a hundred bucks. Yeah. So that's, cause that's the only way the artist makes money. Well, I was reading somewhere and this is kind of stepping back in your story, but I was reading somewhere that you said that you have not really ever had a formal music lesson and that you just, you played all of your, the instruments because you were cheap and you wanted to get it done, but you yeah. kind of are self-taught doing that is is that hundred? Is that did I read that correctly? Well, I had. Uh, I mean, when I was in college, uh, you know, I had some music classes. I had a, a music theory class in college, and I had a piano class, and a, I was a uh, I was playing drums at the time. I was a drummer in the jazz okay. band. So yeah, I mean, I had a couple of years of college where you know there was some education there, but no, I'm not. I don't read. I don't know how to read or. Or I'm not I'm not trained in that way at all. So my um, follow-up question to that is, did you go to any sort of training on this shift that you made into video and movies? Oh. <laughs> that would you would think that would be in, intelligent. <laughs> you would think that would be a good idea. I got thrown into it. I got thrown into the the transition. So so let's talk about that transition because according to somebody looking from the outside, the first time I saw you do anything video was with Shonda Pierce. And let's see, oh, that became the number two movie of the the release week. That seems like overnight success. Right. Yeah. Number two movie in America. Yeah. The night it came out. That seems like overnight success. And I know that most musicians are overnight success after 10 to 20 years of working on the road. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how did you get that overnight success in the movies? Well, you know, we, we were doing some consulting for pure flicks. I was working with Shonda doing music for Shonda. Okay. And, uh, we also were doing marketing for her. My business partner was more of the marketing side and I was more of the creative side. So we were kind of a team where I would make stuff and he would sell it. That was kind of our, our deal. I would make music products and he would go sell them and he would put the deals together. And, and so he was marketing Shonda that she was uh, putting him on salary and he got all of her rec her DVDs gold dvds and platinum dvds and you know he he made all that happen for her with these special deals he would do with family and lifeway that's when there used to be a family christian bookstores right and a lifeway christian that's when they used to exist yeah and you could do this kind of thing and get paid to do it and so i was kind of helping him because we were partners and so i started doing some music for shonda and i got close with shonda she's you know uh really sweet and uh, a good friend and she said to me rick i, I want to make movies and I said, well, you know, I can't really do help you there, but I could make a demo tape. I said, remember, <laughs> right? remember back in the day when you'd make a little three song cassette tape yep. and you'd send it to the record label or the demo tape. And if they liked it, they'd bring you in and say, Hey, we like this. Then they'd put you in a studio in a real studio and they'd record those same three songs or something else. Yeah. You know, I said, why don't, why don't I go on the road with you for a, for a weekend? and get five minutes and maybe, you know, we get five minutes of something on the road that is interesting that then somebody wants to, you know, they want to do. Now I had done some video stuff, my, you know, just some things for her. Hey, you know, uh, Tulsa, I'm going to be in your town on Wednesday night, you know, and little fun, little silly things like that. My son at that time was just getting out of high school and he was starting to work with someone who was doing wedding videos. 
and he was being a videographer for wedding videos. So seeing what he's doing and right in that moment in that time, this is about five, six years ago, the technology started to change to where you could get these DSLR point and shoot cameras right. that started shooting, you know, 1080p high def video with autofocus and great lenses. And, and it looks pretty darn good. Yeah. And, and you don't have to know too much, you know? <laughs> and so, and so I went on the road with her. Now, I've, obviously I, I, uh, I'm a recording. You know, I have my own recording studio. I do all my own engineering. So I understood audio. I right. knew how to get good audio. And I didn't know at the time that the most important thing is audio, that if you get bad mm. audio, you're done. You can have the best looking video you can imagine. But if your audio is bad, you're over. You're done. You know, you've got to have good audio. So I took a little uh, Canon T3i camera with a little $400 lens and put it on autofocus and followed her around and put it on a tripod and filmed her shows and followed her around and did some interviews for a weekend. And instead of getting five minutes, we got 16 minutes ah. and uh, I put it together and edited it in uh, this little program called Vegas. Uh, Sony had, it was at that time, Sony was putting this, this cheap little program called Vegas. Okay. It wasn't even like a pro, you know, like, like premiere or final cut. Kind of like garage band. band for music. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, you know, this, and so I put it together on that and her manager and her took me out to lunch and they said, we really think you need to make this movie. Uh, we, we really like this. Wow. And Shonda feels comfortable with you. We have a good relationship. She can talk to you. And so um, about 10 minutes of that 16 minutes ended up in the movie. Wow. Uh, the first movie was called laughing in the dark. And as you know, it was going to be this movie about, this comedian Shonda Pierce on the road with Shonda Pierce. Well, her daughter had become estranged from her, mm -hmm. was not speaking to her, and she was not able to have any access to her grandchild. Huh. I mean, none. It's like she was like they were dead. Wow. Her husband got so distraught at 50 years old, he starts drinking and becomes an alcoholic. Right. And when we start the interview, when we when I start interviewing her, they had been, she was trying to do the tough love thing. And they were separated. So that's what was going on in her life. And Shonda, if you know Shonda Pierce very well, she's she's she can't she's an open book. Yeah. So that's what starts coming out in all these interviews is just this pain she's in, and how. To, but it's very compelling. It yeah. was very. It really pulled you in, and so much of the powerful moments of that movie were in that first weekend. I went out with her mm -hmm. with a camera on autofocus. Wow. Yeah. And uh, as we're making this movie. Her husband dies. He literally drinks himself to death and dies. Yeah. Uh, binge, binge drinks one night and just, he dies. Um, that's all going on while we're making this film. Mm. So, you know, I'm putting this together and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just making it up as I go. Really? I, you would think I would, but I didn't have any time. You know, I just get thrown into it. Yeah. And then I thought it was going to be this thing that was just going to, we'll sell it on her table. You know, when she goes plays live, it'll be this little DVD that people can buy on her, on her merch table. And then they say, we're going to, we're going to spend $250,000 marketing. It's going to be in movie theaters all over America on a, as a fathom event. And my uh, booking agent ran off with a hundred thousand dollars worth of my money. And this has to be successful because I'm, you know, so all this pressure was on me. Oh. It was just this amazing amount of pressure. For a guy who didn't know what he was doing. I mean, I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. I was, I'm serious. I'm making it up. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm just, I'm making up. I, I got transcripts of every, everything. I got everything transcribed. Then I took all the transcripts and highlighted everything that I thought that I made, took the highlights and put those in other binders and went through those and highlighted them again. And I end up coming in with an entire movie on paper. Mm -hmm. I, I, then I, then I took those little things and I put them on, four by six index cards and I could, and I had this little big index card box. And so I would just kind of move things around. So I'm creating my movie in my index card box. Right. Well, I found out that's called a paper edit. I didn't know what it was. I put my paper edit together. I come in to show the editor all that I've done. He goes, you know, usually they have about 20 people do this. Did you know that? Wow. No. He goes, yeah, uh, one person never does this. <laughs> There's your education right there. <laughs> yeah. I came in with an hour and a half edited movie and he said, you've edited a movie. This isn't, this is, this isn't just a rough edit. You edited a movie 
I refuse to take a solo editing credit. You know, I, I'm insisting that we put your name in as, as an editing credit. I'm like, wow, all right, whatever. So let's pause right there for just a minute. So how did you know to do this stuff? Or was this just, I've got to do this to keep things together? I mean, did you, did you buy uh, movie editing for dummies? Um, <laughs> I mean, did you study people who'd been doing this or was this all just no. literally by the seat of your pants going? It's, it's all literally by the seat of my pants. Or should I say by the grace of God? Yes. By the grace of God. Yeah. I didn't have time. I didn't have time to, I mean, there was something in that little 16 minute edit that they saw that they're, um, I, I, I found out directing a movie is very much like producing a record. Hmm, okay. it's, it's the same skill set. You know, you look at Steve Taylor, who's a record producer mm -hmm. and a movie director. And yeah. He's, you know, um, different. So it's, it's the same kind of skill set. It's working with people. It's trying to tell a story. It's trying to get everybody to be focused and, and driving with a focused concept. And so this, it, I, it was the same kind of thing. The, the software is just like my recording software. Hmm. It's click and drag and it has the wave files, but attached to the wave file is a video file, but I, it's still cut edit paste the same way I do with a recording software. Very similar. Okay. So it wasn't that big of a jump to go into a, especially Vegas because Vegas started out as a multi-track recording software. Okay. Then it became, a video editing software. Mm. So it morphed, mm -hmm. but it started out as a multi-track recording software. So all of the things on it, all of the buttons and the, and the, and the, the menus were all stuff I was, I was familiar with because it was, it was the same kind of software. So, so the one difference though, I show you the technology kind of transfers across, but the one difference in music and movies is in music, you're telling a three minute story. And in a movie, right. you're telling a 90-minute story. So was right. there a, was there a shift and a transition there that you had to do men mentally? Um, no, it's still storytelling. You know, a songwriting is a is storytelling, and it's still the same thing. It's still telling a story and how to tell it compelling and to be able to know what feels right and when you see it, mm -hmm. uh, and to know like. When Shonda says, I had a manager who told me that your kids would rather have a new car than to have a mom at home. And she goes, and he was dead wrong. And then she just sits there and you can see she's, she's, as she's saying it, she's processing it for the first time and mm. she starts crying. So to know, just stay on her. Don't, don't add any music, just stay, you know, yeah. to be able to feel that and to, and to, to see that. Okay. To just to know how that works. That, I don't know. That was just something that was. I guess it was just intuitive. I, I don't know what mm -hmm. to say. Yeah. yeah. Again, maybe a gifting from God. Yeah. It just, it just, it was, it just came. It was all the grace of God. I was having heart palpitations. I was doing, I had one week, I had a 22 hour day, a 20 hour day and an 18 hour day in the same week. Oof. Yeah. So, I mean, and you know, I'm not, I'm not as young as I once were. <laughs> and, um, so my, my son came into my office one day and he goes, Hey, don't have a heart attack, dad. I go, yeah. <laughs> he goes, no, dad, don't have a heart attack. I mean, he was wow. like serious. Wow. It got my attention. He got my attention. So yeah, it just came. It was this freight train. All of a sudden it's a fathom event. We have a release date. It's on the books. We're marketing for that date. I have a drop dead date of when I have to deliver a finished movie yeah. with audio mix, color correction, edit done by this date. So it's, it's a train moving at 180 miles an hour. Oof. And, you know, it's, and it's just, I'm just praying, God, I, I don't want to help me not to screw this up. Mm -hmm. Please help me not screw this up because I was doing everything. I did everything yeah. because we didn't have any money. We didn't have any budget. All the money was being spent on the marketing because yeah. you have to spend all this money on Facebook and all this stuff to get people, you know, you got it in 800 theaters across America. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lot of that's a lot of ground to cover yeah. to let people know. Oh, by the way, on Tuesday night, on May the fifteenth, we're going to show this movie one time. We sure hope you come. You know, so um, we were shocked. I mean, was, I didn't know anyway. No one had any idea that Shonda had this kind of draw, and mm -hmm. it was like the number two movie in America the night it came out. It was a huge success. It won awards. Uh, you know, it's like, what? Yeah. So, and then from there, of course, there was so much story. We, we did another one. 
called Enough. So was that using some footage that you had already gathered, or was this saying, mm -hmm. okay, we've got a brand new project, new. we're going to do Enough, and then you did the same thing with Unashamed, right? Yeah, same yeah. thing. So we did, yeah. well, Unashamed, I said, Shana, we can't talk about your life anymore. Hmm. Uh, you know, we, and she didn't want to talk about her life anymore. So we did a topic. Mm -hmm. So Unashamed was, you know, being here in a, in a culture that's hostile to the gospel, um, being unashamed of being a Christian. Right. And standing for Christ in in a culture that isn't going to like you. Right. Um, that's what that was about. But yeah, so we did three Shonda movies, and they all were very successful. Yeah. You know, top five, all of them. And those uh, opened the door then to work on Russ's story, right? Russ Taff. Russ Taff. Russ Taff. I still believe, and it was in theaters, and it was in the top ten. And so yeah, Russ had seen Shonda and had seen what I had done uh, with her. And so he and his wife, we, I was in, interviewing him for my radio show mm -hmm. and I was saying, you know, your story is pretty interesting. If you ever want to tell it, because he actually on my show was the first time he ever publicly said he was an alcoholic. He had oh, never wow. talked about his alcoholism except on my radio show, my little dinky show that, you know, 12 people listen to. Yeah. Uh, the same, the same I dozens of people <laughs> that buy my records, listen to my radio show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so Russ on my show, I was the first time he ever, he ever publicly talked about his alcoholism. And wow. I said, you know, this is, if you ever want to do a fathom event, like a movie or something, let me know. Cause you know, I was in between, I, it, we knew we, were, we had the Shonda coming up, but we were kind of, I didn't have any work. Yeah. And so then they took me to lunch and they said, what would that look like if we did a movie together? And I said, well, I'll put you in the movie and I'll put your name at the top of the movie, but I won't make a movie about you. I will uh, make a movie about the redemptive, powerful work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But it won't be about you. Uh, that's the only movie I want to make. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just want to be straight up. You know, if they were looking for a fluff piece, you know, that right. Rust Half, what a great singer. Oh, man, the best singer that ever lived. And that's the movie, you know, great. That's I've seen plenty of those documentaries. I just have no interest in making that documentary. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't want to do that. Um, he's got an amazing story and that needs to be told. And they, when I said that, they were just, they lit up and they said, this is exactly what we wanted to hear. This is what we want. Yeah. Russ is all about Jesus. He's not about himself. He's not about promoting himself. And, and they got real open and really real. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it won, you know, it won nine awards and it was just like, it just went, it just, oh my goodness. And so I was, again, just God shows up and does it. You know, yeah. I don't know how it happens. Yeah. I, seriously, I don't know how to make a movie. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, that's the truth. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> I've except, had no, except now you have four no training. You've got four under your belt, so you've got a little experience now that that helps. <laughs> well, I will tell you this: I am a huge Russ Taff fan on, and, and ever since uh, the Imperials days. In fact, Russ Taff's vocals on "I'm Forgiven" is the reason that I'm into Christian music and the Christian Music Archive exists today. So. When I saw that this movie was coming out, I said, oh, I want to buy it. I happened to know about the story. Um, one of the most inspirational, God loves you no matter what stories I've ever seen on film. And uh, very, very well done. And I just want to I, I thank you for being sensitive to God's leading to help make that story because... Uh, it's an amazing story, and I immediately bought the DVD and passed it around church and had people at church who were struggling with alcoholism and struggling with other addictions that said, this is a life-changing thing for me. So what you did to follow God's leading to make this movie is a gift and is a tool that is still being used, I believe, today, uh, no, no pun intended, um, mm -hmm. to to change people's lives, to let people know that God loves you. In fact, I close every one of my podcasts with God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you, which is something that Russ Taff said in that movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. Oh, praise God. It's on Amazon Prime, so people can can watch it there as well. Um, but buying the DVD is great because we, uh, my business partner and I, we did lose money on that. So mm. uh, buying the DVD will really help. So that would be great. <laughs> About a dozen more people buy it now. <laughs> so here's here's the thing that I find interesting. We see all of these these great movies, this great music that's being produced, and we think, oh, this is great, wonderful, wonderful. But yet the people that are making this stuff are still having to finance it out of their own pocket in case, in fact, losing money on it. 
why do you continue? Yeah, uh, Steve Taylor said movie making is to, is a is is a nice hobby. You know, <laughs> it's it's a it's a good hobby. Yeah. Um, well, you know, with Shonda, we did make money. You know, because those were those were fath- very successful Fathom events, mm-hmm. and um, and her DVD sales were well, and she and then her because of the movies. Well, I think because of all the marketing dollars that we spent marketing her, mm. her concert sales now have her attendance is almost six times what it was wow. before we made that first movie. And now she had had huge concert uh, in the past, but where her career was at that point, her, her sales are, are anywhere from the five to six times what they were. So okay. I, I, I don't want to say the movie did that, I, but I do think all the money that was spent marketing those movies, yeah, I would say there's probably about three quarters of a million dollars worth of marketing money mm-hmm. that have been put into marketing the movies. What they're also marketing is her. They're marketing her career. So, And she's kind of in the prime of her career right now, too. I mean, she, where, where Russ, no offense against Russ at all, but he's not the vocal that he was 20 years ago. Sure, right. Yeah. And, you know, the alcohol and yeah. stuff. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take their toll. But um, so the Russ Taft movie was, as I was making it, there was a moment where I say, God, are you going to have me spend two years making this movie and then have me lose money? Is that, is that what's going to happen here? And I really felt the Lord say, I'll define success. Let me define what success is. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the movie came out and then didn't do what we were hoping it would do as far as box office went. Right. And God, you know, uh, you know, he, he went ahead and defined success for me. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we did, we, we, we lost some money, but then the, we had this Shonda movie come right up on the heels of it that did really well. So that we were okay. okay. The, all the money we lost, the Shonda movie paid. And then I was interviewing Stephen Kendrick from the Kendrick brothers, as right. you know, who make a bunch of uh, Christian courageous war room, fireproof. Uh, so before we get into the Kendrick thing, because I, I do want to, I do want to dig into that because that's kind of the next big chapter that you're working on right now. But you have mentioned multiple times the fact that you don't want to do stuff that's just a fluff piece. You want to do stuff that's a meat that that is something that points people to Jesus. People who hear your your radio show, your testimony is is very focused on we do this for Jesus. Why are you doing this for Jesus when you could probably do this stuff on the mainstream and not risk your money as much? Why is Jesus content? so important to you? Well, at this stage in my life, uh, you know, so much of my early part of my life was about ambition and um, chasing that brass ring. You know, I mean, I, I, the thought that I wasn't going to be Bruce Springsteen never really occurred to me <laughs> right. till I was in my late thirties. And it finally hit me. I'm not going to be Bruce Springsteen. Mm. You know, I'm not going to be that. I mean, that's what I thought was going to happen in, in the thought and had never really, that's how, that's how, wacko i was it never occurred to me that i wouldn't be bruce springsteen right and and you know at this stage in my life i just i i don't want to do things that are me focused um just because it's so unfulfilling and i want to make a difference and what makes a difference are things that you know at the end of the day all go all glory goes to god anyway if I'm trying to take glory for myself, I'm, I'm a thief because mm. it's his glory. Um, and so I just don't want to spend my time or my life glorifying anybody or anything else other than God. All I want to do for the rest of my life is just glorify God. That's it. I don't want to do anything else. So how did, so, you, how did you come to that change? Because I'm, I'm guessing that there's people listening who are up and coming musicians or who are in a career right now that says, man, I've got to provide for my family. I've got to do, you know certain things so that we can pay the bills so that I can make the advancement so that I can do more for God or whatever. How do you make that shift from this job can be a secondary piece to focusing on God? Well, yeah, I, it, it never was that I had a day job. I had a, I had a sales job. So I was, I was, uh, while I had my, when I got my record deal, I was working a job, you know, mm-hmm. when I lost my, my management contract in LA and moved to Nashville. I, I was sell, I was 
selling three ring binders, pocket folders, and index tabs on the phone. You know, may I speak to the person <laughs> responsible for purchasing your three ring binders, pocket folders, and index tabs, please? You know, yeah. and uh, smiling and dialing. You know, that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. and, and so, because um, I was feeding my family. Right. So I think for me, for me, I had to take making money out of the equation. I just had to take it out. And so it was all about how, how can I minister? How can, in, uh, you know, a successful pro what I learned with, with my business partner, you know, like with worship jams and things is, is um, you have to meet a real or a perceived need. That's what, that's what a successful project is. Uh, you might like somebody's record. A lot of people liked my records, but they didn't feel like they needed to go buy it. Mm -hmm. There was nothing about it that they felt they I need this record. Somebody is going to go and purchase something they think they need. Either they do need or they think they need. Right. And so, um, you know, I just wanted to just meet needs. And uh, so with this, with Shonda, I just wanted to tell a real story. I didn't know I'd, when I was making it, I didn't know it was going to be a fathom event. I didn't know. We didn't know if it was going to be successful. We didn't know what was going to happen and God took it from there. But I think getting the, trying to figure out how to make music for a living. I think right now that's a, I think that's a waste of time. I think that's just a depression laden uh, equation in your life. I think you're just asking for depression. I think you go make money, do what you need to do to make money. And then you make the music for God just to glorify him and let him do what he wants to do with it. And it might be just between you and God. It might be only God ever hears it. Yeah. And it's just to please him, you know, and that's okay. Uh, but I think if you're trying to all that ambition, it, it just, it never worked for me. I never got it that way. It just never came to me that way. And so I've kind of just been single-mindedly focused on that because that's, that's kind of been working for me, you mm -hmm. know, that's working okay for me and okay. We're going to do worship songs for kids, but it's going to be the best worship music you ever heard for kids, you know? And, and, uh, uh, you know, and we met a need, yeah. we met a need that people needed that. And so they went to this, they went down to Walmart and they paid 1299 for that CD because they needed it for their kids. Um, so, and that's ministry ministry. It, it's like when we lead worship, it's not about what songs do you want to play? Do you like, why do you, what kind of songs do you want your band to be? Yeah. We want to sound like you uh, two light. You know, that's all, <laughs> all most Christian music. I just call it you two light. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's all sounds the same. It's just you two light. And you got the smoke and all that stuff and, and the skinny jeans and a bunch of 20 year olds who don't really know anything about God who are writing these songs who really have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, Cause they really have no experience with Christ. Well, one of the things that I've been kind of working through in my life lately and, and hearing from a lot of folks on conversations like this is worship doesn't necessarily mean singing a song. Worship to our God is offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to God and that he gives us gifts and skills to use. Now, some of us may have music skills. Some of us may have accounting skills. Some of us may have plumbing skills, but to do the best that we can at whatever that skill is, is the offer of worship to the Lord. And, and, I, and I would define, I would define ministry. I would define it as meeting the need. Mm -hmm, exactly. So what, what, what songs does your congregation need you to be singing? Mm -hmm. It isn't, it isn't what do you like? Yep. That is, that's not what it's about. That's not meeting anybody's need. What is this? You know, I go to a, a Presbyterian church, a PCA, uh, church and we do a lot of hymns because that's what we need to do in our church. Yeah. We do a lot of hymns and I love hymns. Um, you know, because they have real doctrine. And so, um, you know, we don't do a lot of singing about how God makes us feel. We right. don't do a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that has worked for me has, has just been, I just do it for you, Lord. This is just to glorify you. I just want to tell the truth. I'm not here to make a fluff piece for anybody. And we want to just, let you be yeah i told russ jesus is going to be the star of the movie yeah you're in it and it's going to be about you but it's not about you jesus is the star and so that's all i want to do and um 
I, I'm what a blessing that I get to do this. Yeah. What a what? Yeah. I've I've never had a class, not a class, <laughs> not a class. I haven't sit through one video of somebody <laughs> telling me how to make. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> what did God tell Moses? What's that thing in your hand? Oh, it's my shepherd's crook. Well, then let's use that. That's what I've given you to use. Let's use that. Yeah. Let's use that. <laughs> yeah. So, so the rust thing was a, such a such a blessing to get to. Yeah. Get to do that, and and you know, and there was Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis Chapman and Michael Tate and Bart Millard and all those guys. So that was kind of fun getting yeah. to interview them and get to go to Amy Grant's house and hang out with her and Vince. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. So I kind of interrupted your story to try to get back into that kind of why you do what you do, but you are now working on a project with the Kendrick brothers and uh, tell us a little bit about how that, uh, you started by saying you were, you were uh, interviewing one of the Kendrick brothers. Yeah. I was interviewing Stephen Kendrick. And after our interview, he was in the interview. He said some nice things about the Rust Half movie. He really liked it. And after the interview, we started talking. He goes, you know, we've been wanting to do documentaries, and we think you'd be, you know, we think you'd be perfect. You know, whatever. That's what he said. But anyway, um, I said, well, yeah, let me know. And so they they had Overcomer coming out, uh, and so they were getting ready for that release. But then um, a year ago, November, we finally came to let's let's do this so we started filming a year ago december okay uh we started on it and started working on this uh he'd had three or four uh ideas that he wanted to do documentaries on um and one was on the fatherhood of god uh one was on uh abortion one was on uh parenting and then uh one was on how do i know if the New, the, the scriptures are reliable okay. you know how do yeah. i know the bible and i said you know i think the fatherhood of god is the upstream issue on all these hmm. if i can't connect with god as father you can prove to me that the scriptures are true all day long if i don't believe that god's a loving father because my dad was so messed up and i can't put the words perfect and father together uh. Uh, you know, and so I, God's been really, I've been really going through a lot of, uh, regarding sonship and this, what I call this functional orphan. Hmm. You know, I go to church, I lead worship, maybe I do a men's group, or maybe I teach a Bible study or have a home group that I lead. But, and I can believe that God is, can, can work in your life. I can pray for you and I can believe that God will do things for you but I don't really believe it from me. Mm. I don't really think God's really going to be in control of my life. So I kind of need to do a little bit of that. And I'm not so sure that he's sovereign. So I maybe I need to be in control and I know he's good for other people, but I don't just know how, how good he is for me. And so this is what I call a functional orphan. Okay. Someone who does not know that God is their father yeah. does not, does not know how to relate to God as father. Because their father issue, their father image is so messed up. Yeah. It's so broken. And I say, um, one of the things I say in the movie, we have like this big piece of glass, and on it is etched an image of our earthly father. And we look at God through that piece of glass and we project onto God traits that are from our father. And our life work is kind of erasing that image of our earthly father so that we can see God through the lens of Jesus. And um, so many people, Christian people struggle with God. They struggle with belief. They struggle with believing that God loves them, that God is a loving father to them. And so I think that's the upstream issue. I said, I think fatherhood is it. This whole issue of, of sonship, of, of, and, you know, being adopted as, as sons and daughters, um, this is the main issue in our country right now. Fatherlessness, uh, fatherless homes is the number one demographic for a myriad of issues. Uh, incarceration, the number one uh, demographic for, for uh, incarcerations are, are people who come from fatherless homes. Teenage suicide, fatherless homes, uh, prostitution, fatherless homes, 
drug addiction. I mean, you go down the list. Yeah. And fatherlessness is the number one issue in all. So, I mean, it is the issue of our nation. And that's what's going on with our culture right now mm -hmm. is we're, we've got this fatherless culture and look at us, yeah. look at what's happening. We're, we're confused. We don't know who we are. We don't know what sex we are. We don't know anything. We, we just don't know who we are. We've completely lost touch with our, with, with God. And look at our churches. We're so disconnected from God. We go to church and we do all the church stuff, but we're disconnected from him. We really we're orphans. So I just, so we're making a movie on the fatherhood of God, and it's it's uh it's been a very different experience. This is going to be a, a Sony. Sony's going to put this out in theaters as a regular theatrical. Um, so this has been very different in that you know we've had I've had budget. I, I have a, <laughs> a slew of people who are helping and coming along to help, and we have a, a producer that the Kendricks have hired by the name of Mark Miller, who's doing a great job, and you know editors and all these different people that we're working with and collaborating with. So what a different and having the Kendrick brothers to collaborate with as well. Yeah. So I'm directing, I'm directing, I'm writing and directing it. And they're the executive producers. Okay. Basically that means they're kind of putting up the money and, 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 and overseeing everything, you know? So the thing that I, that comes to my mind is uh, the documentaries that you've made so far of Russ Taff, you have Russ as a central figure although Jesus is the focus, uh, Shonda's story, you've got, mm -hmm. you know, a, a very dynamic person as the central focus. Um, last time I saw, it was kind of hard to stick a mic and put a camera in front of Jesus. So how do you paint this picture of God the Father without a physical star, so well, we to have, speak? We have four, four stories that we tell in the movie. Four stories, uh, an adoption story, a... Uh, someone who found his father, um, who, who didn't have one, uh, you know, a surrogate father, someone who grew up with, you know, bad dads. And then we, we do a thing on the blessing on getting, being, getting a blessing mm. from the father. Tony Evans is in the movie. Um, of course the Kendrick brothers are in it. Jim Daly from focus on the family. Uh, we have, we have some football players, some NFL things going on. So some, some interesting stuff, uh, that I'm excited about. It's, it's uh, it's pretty pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm so, really excited about this. So project. where are you in the middle uh, in this project? We're finishing up uh, the editing now. We're editing it now. Okay. Uh, we've been in the editing stage for a while, um, and it's supposed to be with COVID. You know, we just don't know. But sure. Sony is wanting to have it in theaters in August this year, August of 2021, um, and so that is the the hope. Um, that it'll be in about a thousand theaters. They wanted to do more, but steep, but the Kendrick said, no, we don't want, cause you have to pay. I don't know if you know this, you have to pay a thousand dollars a theater. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Well, it used to be called a real charge. Like you would have these big, <laughs> thick, heavy reels of 35 millimeter film. Right, right? Sure. And so they would charge you a thousand bucks for that. So now they're calling it a screen charge. Mm. So you basically rent your screen where you're going to play your movie. Uh, well, it's just a way for the movie, the, the theaters to make some extra money. Mm. They're, they're saying, okay, we've switched everything over to digital. So we need this extra money to help us with our, you know, and so I think in another three or four years are going to, it might be eliminated, but I want you to do the math on this now, a thousand dollars a screen. And they want to put in a thousand screens. That's a few, that's a few zeros. That's a million dollars. Now that's just to get it into movie theaters. That doesn't mean we've marketed it mm -hmm. or we've made it or wow. edited or color corrected it or, or, uh, taken out one ad or one Facebook post. Yeah. That's a million dollars just to get it on screens. So that's why they didn't want to have it on 2000 screens. Yeah. They yeah. said, let's do it on a thousand. And if it does good, then we can go to the other screens. But if it tanks, you know, we don't want to have that because that guess who has to pay. It's just like a record deal. Sure. Same thing. Yeah. The artist pays for it. All comes out of the record company's not going to pay for it. You're going to pay for yeah. it. So, yeah. you know, Sony's not paying for that. The Kendrick brothers are going to pay for that, you know, so yeah. it comes out of all their royalties. So, uh, 
So anyway, more more info than you wanted to hear. No, that's very cool. <laughs> I, I'm a I'm a credit reader and a beside the behind the scenes fast aficionado. I love hearing all this kind of stuff behind the scenes. Well, well, Rick, I'm very excited about seeing this movie and excited that we've got Sony on board. I mean, that's a pretty big name in movies. Um, we're going to be praying that this movie is just another one of those stories like the Rest Taft story, like the Shonda stories that point people to Jesus that say there is a God, a Father who loves you, and yeah. you need to open your heart to him because he's going to change your life in ways that you could not imagine. My focus on making the movie is really for Christians who they think they're going to see some movie about the fatherhood of God, like, oh, this will be good for a non-Christian to, to show them that there's this God who loves them, and for them to realize, oh my goodness, I don't believe this about God. I, I'm the orphan. This is me. You know, and that's what I want to do, is, is, is I want to, and what you can do with a movie, which is so amazing, is that you can communicate to the, the left and the right part of the brain at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can communicate to you emotionally and give you things that just really hit you hard emotionally. And then I can communicate truth and you're, you're ready to hear it. You're open to hear something that I could say. I could come up to you and go, you know, you know you're really struggling with God. You're struggling with believing in God. And you go, no, that's not at all. I don't struggle at all believing in God when the reality is you really do, but you're too self-righteous to even admit it. And so when I can show you from an emotional perspective, I can open up, you know, that's the beauty of film yeah. is that it can, it can really communicate emotionally. Then you're able to, to get a great truth in and go, oh my goodness, I, I played, we, I had a few clips that we, we, we had put together and I have a, a home group that I, that I lead and I played it for my home group. And uh, this guy who's been really struggling came up to me when everybody had gone. He goes, Rick, I, I need to see this movie. I went, yeah, well, I'd like to see it too. He goes, no, you don't understand. I need to see this movie. Mm -hmm. He goes, he said, just from what I saw, I have to change my life. I was just going, oh man, that, yeah, that's, that was to me. Yeah. That's the success. Yeah. It's not an award or uh, a number two movie in America. It's, that is not the success. To me, it's having someone say, I, after seeing this, I have to change my life. I, I, I have to, to start seeing God differently and I need to start relating to him as father. And, and I'm seeing that my relationship with my dad is so bad, I don't know how to relate to God as father. And I need to learn how to do that. So that's what we're trying to do with the movie. And uh, it's a it's a big task and so boy if you could be praying for us because we're still in the final stages of kind of putting all this together and there there are a few puzzle pieces that we're still trying to figure out we need <laughs> we pray all the time you know god you're the author you're the writer you're the director you're the producer will you make this movie this is your movie will you make it so boy if, if anyone listening could put us in your prayers and pray for us as we make this movie i think it's going to have a a, a powerful impact. I mean, I think it could. It's just what God wants to do with it. It's up to him. It's his thing. I hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes look at movie making, music, and ministry. I appreciated Rick's focus on learning how he learned the importance of meeting his audience's needs, even putting aside what makes sense financially to focus on the things that really make a difference. I also appreciated his emphasis on making sure that you can meet people's needs with excellence and quality. I think this is a great reminder for us, no matter what career path we are on. I like what Paul writes at the end of the book of Titus that kind of ties into this. He's giving instructions on the importance of caring for each other, and he says, quote, We must learn to do good by meeting the needs of others. Then they will be productive. Using our skills to care for and meet the needs of those around us is one of the things Jesus also demonstrated during his lifetime here on earth. These are great reminders, Rick, and I thank you for sharing them with us today. As always, thanks for joining me for this conversation today. I am grateful that we get to spend this time together each week hearing stories of God's amazing faithfulness. As a regular listener to this podcast, would you mind taking a few minutes and rating it on your favorite podcast app? 
Reviews and ratings really help spread the word so that other folks can hear about these great conversations. And if you have comments or questions for me, please feel free to drop me a message on any of the social media platforms. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon by searching for at CCMExchange. Or you can always drop me an email on the website ChristianMusicArchive.com. I'm really looking forward to our time together next week when I have another great conversation with one of the musicians you'll find on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. So until then, remember this. God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>